and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. Why has engineering always been the backbone of civilization? And why do we enjoy making things? This month, Lord Brown, in conversation with Vivian Parry, explains what engineering is, what it has done for us, and how it can deliver a brighter future. Robots, our health, security, climate change, as well as autonomous vehicles are discussed. Hello, how lovely to be here at the RI again. I always feel a bit of a fraud because Faraday would actually properly spin in his grave if he knew I was sitting in this hallowed hall. I actually had to... I was turned away from doing practicals at university, I will confess to you now, because I broke so much equipment, they said they couldn't afford to teach me. Would I please stop? So I always feel... Faraday kind of looking at me in here. Uh, so I'm delighted to be with uh, Lord Brown. Um, I thought I particularly, in the light that we're talking about engineering, I was very struck by the Evening Standards headline, technology will save us, say BT. That's providing that the engineer calls on time, of course. But we're here to discuss this wonderful book, uh, Make, Think and Imagine, which I really thoroughly recommend to you. And... Uh, if uh, you don't know uh, Lord Brown, although I know many of you will, he is an engineer, trained first at Cambridge, then at Stanford, then went into business, became chief executive of BP for over a decade, from 95 to 2007. He's chairman of the Crick, past president of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and a former chair of the Tate. So a very wide range of uh, interests. Now, I want to just find out before we start, how many of you are engineers? So, all those people, Lord Brown says that engineering is the backbone of civilization and at the heart of all human progress. Put your hands up if you're engineers who believe that. <laughs> Odd that. Odd that. <laughs> do you know, it's wonderful to be with an audience of engineers. I do love them. Um, <laughs> so... This wonderful book, Make, Think, Imagine. So, first of all, why did you write it? So, good evening. I, I wrote it for the very reason you've, you've mentioned. Uh, I spend a lot of my life in a milieu with people who believe that uh, civilization uh, is founded on dramatic, visual uh, arts, on writing, on history, uh, on uh, discourse, generally. Uh, and I uh, agree with them to an extent. But then when you think about it, you ask yourself, how can we do all this? What underlies everything that we do as a human being? From the very beginning, you know, when we made a stone axe, a flint axe, in order to change our diet, you know, cut up an animal, uh, through to making machines to look at the beginning, almost the beginning of time, the James Webb, Space Telescope, which is going to go and sit at the second Lagrangian point and look uh, further in the distance than we've ever seen. And I said to myself, the way that we really build civilization is to build it with engineering, engineered products, engineering concepts. And it's on top of all that that everything we do is enabled. So the fundamental basis, I would argue, for all civilization is engineering. 
the not way science. I define it. Not science? No. I decide... <laughs> no, absolutely not. I, 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 we can have, should we have the, 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 the Fortney fight or so the I've decided, fight? So it depends on your definition. Of course you have to define your terms. So I've defined them the way I like them. After all, that's one of the good things about writing a book. You get to actually define things the way you like them. So um, I, I learned that from J.K. Rowling. Uh, and so uh, I define uh, the following terms, roughly. So science is an art of discovery. It, it sits in the laboratory, in the minds, in great people's minds, and thing, new things are discovered. So that's one bit of it. And that then in the middle, there's something called engineering. And I like to think of engineering as a, a head with two faces. So it looks towards the fruits of discovery, very valid, very important act, and then its other face looks towards humanity and the market, very often commerce, sometimes. And inside this head, some amazing thing happens. It takes these discoveries and makes them into things that make a difference for humanity. And discoveries themselves can't actually do that. Uh, so that's where I define engineering and I've taken a very broad sweep definition. Uh, it covers most things which start with a discovery and end up with a product, an act, a commerce that changes the way humanity is. For the better, I hope, not always. I think we'll let you off with a caution on that one. Uh, why did you write Make, Think, Imagine? Because there will be some people here who will think, well, should those words be in a different order? Correct. They, most people come up to me and say, you got that wrong. And I say, well, actually, it's quite interesting that you've thought about it. That's the first point. Uh, and that's no bad thing. But I, I wanted to give some uh, space to the idea that actually it doesn't always work that people imagine things, think, and then make things. So, for example, uh, Mr. Carnot uh, and the steam engine. Uh, so we made a steam engine, and Mr. Carnot kept wondering why it worked, uh, and in the end came up with the second law of thermodynamics. He didn't come up with the second law of thermodynamics in order to build a steam engine. So it does work the other way around, and I think there's something very human, really deeply human, about making things. And, I, and I, the reason I say that is, first of all, most of us get very upset internally when we see something uh, take away from our ability to make things. So a factory closes, it's disproportionately hurtful to people than, let's say, uh, an idea disappearing might be the same value, but it's disproportionately strong to humans. Secondly, I think as many, many people like making things, they actually like making things, whether that is cooking, whether it's in the garden, whether it's uh, DIY, whether it's tinkering. You used to be able to tinker with a car, you probably still can, a bit more difficult, but there are a lot of things people like doing uh, which is a very sort of natural part of human life. So I said, well, I think we have to give this a higher status than we're giving it today. 
making is a very important thing. And it does make people think. And when they think, they imagine. So I argued that was the order. And I've, dis- I've had plenty of people disagree with me. But, <laughs> but of course, okay. making is something that actually lots of people don't get to do these days. I mean, there are lots of things that are not allowed now in school laboratories that we used to be able to do, and people don't get the opportunity. And I think that's why you've seen some of those you know, Institute of Making and those kind of things, because it draws people into then engineering and understanding. Well, I think so, and life generally. You know, I mean, I, I do think uh, it seems to me in, in, the, in the act of making, you understand something about the way life works, whether it's uh, cooking a, a bread or whether it's uh, making a garden grow or whether it is simply putting two bits of wood together. Uh, you understand a lot more about how life actually works. Uh, and I think that's a very important act. Uh, and what, what we see today, of course, is that making has become a very different experience. You know, you can make extraordinary things locally. Uh, you can have factories that do things that were inconceivable in the past. You know, used to, for example, make great big bits of aeroplanes by drop forging them, by forging them, especially fighter aircraft. And now you can make them by melding bits of wire together or actually making them, making the small components out of uh, metal powder that you can 3D print. So you can do lots of different things. Uh, And uh, these things change the way in which we think about objects, they change the way we think about life, and they change what we can do as people. We can make bits of uh, skeletons and all sorts of things to fit, as opposed to try and figure out how you force fit them into people, all of whom are different. Mm. Uh, it's a tremendous change, which has taken place really quite recently. And have you got a secret workshop? And do you make things? Not anymore, because uh, I've decided I, 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 the only thing I make is books now. That's it. <laughs> so, uh, this, for this but book... But I used to uh, say I used to do that. Of course I did. I was... Uh, I, I learnt my engineering by doing things with my hands uh, and for a long, long time. Of course, one of the things I did was make photographs and actually make them from scratch to the finish in a dark room. Wow. How many of you have got workshops or sheds or making places? Yeah, there's quite a, there's quite a few of you. Uh, and is it your refuge? Yes, <laughs> I'm taking that as a yes. So for this book, John, you interviewed almost 100 people, and it was an extraordinary range of people. Uh, You know, moral philosophers, historians, archaeologists, designers, scientists and engineers, yes, but all these other people uh, as well. Not many women, though. 100 people, but only 13 women, by my counting. Not many, because they were very difficult to find, uh, very difficult to find at the top of their profession. I think I picked the people who were absolutely at the top of their profession that I could actually get hold of in the places Mm. I went to. So if I were doing it again, I'd like to start with a book with only women and see how I could work, make that work. 
What was very interesting is how uh, I kind of didn't notice the difference, you know, and why would you, why should you? Uh, although the difference was very stark in the past. Uh, I tell the story of penicillin in particular with uh, Margaret uh, uh, Russo Hutchinson, a uh, chemical engineer in the United States. So everybody, quote, knows that Alexander Fleming and a couple of other people discovered penicillin. There's a whole question behind that. But they were the people who actually found the, uh, realized the potency of penicillin, but they couldn't make a drug out of it to save their lives. It was an unstable bacterium. So they, uh, but they got the Nobel Prize for that. Uh, and uh, while they were getting their Nobel Prize, uh, the person who made it into a stable, manufacturable uh, item uh, and made it, could make it in billions of units uh, was a chemical engineer. Uh, and she was at home uh, looking after her child while everybody else was in Stockholm having a great time with the King of Sweden. So I think it's a real example of, uh, you know, and it's a modern, a reasonably modern example of, you know, it depended who you were and who you were decided what credit you got. And actually, the reason we have penicillin as a stable drug is her work, not actually the discoverer's work. Literally billions of units were made very quickly uh, and that saved a huge number of lives in the army. It has to be said that when Dorothy Hodgkin won her Nobel Prize, the headline in the Daily Mail was Oxford Housewife Wins Nobel. <laughs> so you do... I mean, this book is terrific. It, it, it's both history and, uh, as I've said, it's, it's a love poem to engineering. But you make some very provocative statements. I mean, there's one that engineers have saved far more lives than all physicians to put together. And obviously that's one example that you might put towards that thesis. There are lots of them. There are lots of them. I think if you start with public health, it's, it's a game, set and match immediately <laughs> uh, because of sewers and clean water, all of which are engineered processes or products, whether it's the big sewers of London, after the great stink of London you know, where, where the sewage in the Thames and the heat created an impossible environment. So Bazalgette was commissioned to make these great sewers, which still work. Uh, they're being enhanced now. Uh, despite so, the fatbergs. Yes, despite that. <laughs> but it, uh, uh, that's, that's the abuse of the sewers, I yes. think. But it saved, uh, you know, public health expanded hugely. But if you go into a hospital today... Uh, just look around, look at the equipment, mm. just look at the kit, and uh, look at what's happening in an operating theatre with robotic surgery. And where do you think engineering has the most potential to save lives in the future? So I think uh, there are two areas. One is, I think, the ability to assemble gigantic, gigantic, I mean super gigantic data sets, not just of genomic information, but of information about your environment, put it all together, and then use learning algorithms, machine learning, 
to use it to get better diagnoses at very high probability and even prognosis, sort of future forecast prognosis of what might be wrong with you in the future. These are, this is possible, it's actually absolutely possible, provided you can actually get hold of the data and provided that people don't object to that data being used in a pretty anonymized way, uh, hopefully for the public good, not just for commercial gain. So I think that that, I think, is a great advance, and that's about engineering. It's about software engineering. Uh, it's also about hardware, about because you need the power. gigantic computing power you have today. So that's one, I think, which is just extraordinary uh, in changing the way I think we think about medicine entirely. The, the other way which I found very interesting, people often ask me, who, who's the most remarkable person I met on this tour of interviews? And it's, uh, it's close to an impossible question to answer because there's some truly great people I met. But the person who impressed me the most by purpose uh, was a guy called Robert Langer at MIT. Oh, he's extraordinary, isn't he? Polymer scientist. Amazing. Well, no, he started life as a chemical engineer. So he graduated as a chemical engineer and he got job offers naturally from people like BP, uh, Exxon, we're called Esso at the time, uh, and a variety of others. And Bob said to himself, but actually, I don't want to work in a refinery. I want to work in a hospital. So this was a little while ago. So he wrote off to hospitals, and hospital after hospital wrote back saying, we are a hospital, you are a chemical engineer. You don't fit, there's nothing for you to do here. I think the 40th application, so it's a real story of, you know, collision of all these stovepipe problems. The 40th letter he wrote, uh, the guy wrote back saying, I'm as crazy as you are, so I'll give you a job. You know, I don't know what you're going to do, but I'll give you a job. I said, we're both crazy, come and do this. So that's what he did. So he used his chemical engineering expertise in actually understanding how to, how to develop different ways of getting into the bloodstream and delivering things through the bloodstream, the river, to locations, specific locations, and allowing drugs to time uh, release at, in certain parts of the body. So this is very interesting. So he said to me, uh, of course, you know, chemotherapy, all we do is pollute the river. He said, let's suppose I can take something and float it to the right point and get it to work there. Then I don't pollute the river. I actually cure what I need to cure, which is what he's beginning to, what he's, which he is doing. But what I liked about him most of all is when I was leaving um, his office, I said, is there anything else you want to say to me, Bob? He said, well, he said, I suppose, you know, I've got all these things, and you look around his office, and this, the walls are covered with citations. He's won everything, I think. And, you know, he's made a huge amount of money because he's called the Edison of medicine. Uh, I think it's $25 billion worth of companies have floated out of his, out of his research labs. 
And he said to me, well, actually, you know, my purpose here is none of that, really. He said, I just want to cure suffering if I possibly can. And I thought to myself, that's the person who's uh, impressed me the most. And I'll continue that Bob Langer story by saying that one of the... So I used to present a programme called Tomorrow's World, um, which people in their prime will remember. <laughs> and, uh, and I went to film uh, in Bob Langer's lab because... Um, do you remember the story of the mouse with a human ear on its back? It was an image that went all around the world. And Bob Langer had created this polymer which you could seed with cells and it would allow um, tissues to develop in 3D because previously all you'd been able to do was um, have flat 2D sheets of cells which of course is no good if you wanted to build something like a, you know, a complex like a, a kidney or liver or indeed an ear which was the first thing that mm. was that was tried. So I, I remember him exactly as but you it, do, it, as amazing being astonishing. Innovation, amazing innovation. And it, it's created by having... A purpose. A purpose and also by having a, a great attractiveness to people because the purpose is a good purpose. So he has enormous numbers of graduate students, all of whom, uh, as he says, most of the things I make usually get rejected by most people in the first instance. In the second instance, they get accepted. Most of my graduate students get rejected and then become full professors somewhere. You know. And he's got 25 of them, I think, so far. Yeah, so he's an utterly extraordinary man. So this book, I think what's remarkable about this book is that it's very much a book where there are glasses definitely half full you are an optimist. You feel that the future is not a future to fear, but a future that actually engineering will make better for us. And, I mean, one of the things I, I guess that people might say if you stop people in the street is that they feel that progress and growth are somehow you know, the twin demons uh, of life. They're responsible for many of the world's uh, ills, including, of course, catastrophic uh, climate change. So in the face of that feeling, why is it that you are so optimistic in your book? I hope we come back to climate change. Yes, I will. we will. But I, I think, uh, well, I, I think I have basically broad facts on my side. You know, engineering has created a healthier population, uh, one which is connected better, therefore it can be informed better, it's educated better, lives longer, has less starvation, there's still starvation, because of delivery and because of agricultural improvements. So I think progress has a, has a definite proof point, if I can put it like that. Um, and I still think that there are an awful lot of people, about one and a half billion in the world, who would be sad to think that we're going to consign them to exactly where they are today, which is below subsistence level. And that would, I think, be immoral, wrong. So I think progress in the world is absolutely needed. You know, it has to, there has to be more things done to give more people the opportunity to progress. 
I believe that to be firmly correct. And we do live in better times. I mean, Hans Rosling has done a book which shows categorically that we we live in better and, and healthier times. And yet somehow we still feel that we are living in the in the worst of times, that the world is going to so there, hell in a handcuff. There are two things, I think. First of all, let me... I, I, I think while I, my book is optimistic, I hope it's clear-eyed, mm. uh, and I think that what engineering does for you is it produces an intended consequence very often. So the intended consequence, for example, of uh, oil and gas companies was, I firmly believe to produce something which was good for people, give them light, heat and mobility, and allowed them to progress. Freedom to roam the roads, for example, was a big thing in the 50s and 60s where you know, not everyone had a car and it was sort of an amazing thing to go and drive yourself somewhere. That was the intended consequence. The unintended consequence is too much carbon dioxide vast amounts of carbon dioxide and a clear and present danger to the natural environment. So it's an existential threat to the world that's being created as an unintended consequence of what's gone on. Now, there are things we can do, which I'll come back to. The same is true with antibiotics. You know, antibiotics mean a wonderful thing. You know, no longer do you just cut yourself and die, you can fix it. Sore throat, fix. The only problem is that if you don't fix it properly, you create an unintended consequence called uh, bacteria that actually you can't kill because they're so strong because they've escaped everything that's given them, uh, could kill them. So antimicrobial resistance is the unintended consequence of, of antibiotics. And that's a second existential threat to the world. That could kill us, all of us, a lot of us. So these things, I worry people. The third is, you know, we all love the convenience of, I've got my phone, taking an iPhone, looking at it, your face is recognised, it opens, you don't have to worry about things, you just go and use it. That's a great uh, convenience, people love it. Uh, They don't particularly like the idea of uh, facial recognition being used to track a particular subsets of the, of the nation, of a nation, and say, you know, you can't leave here, we're going to track what you do, we can see you at all stages, and we'll keep you in confinement. People don't like that. We just certainly don't like that. It's against our beliefs in human rights. So the list goes on and on. And I think when you stack up the list on balance... It's all good things, but there are bad things. And so people say, actually, my weighting of the bad things is not yours. They're really terrible. So therefore, the good things don't work. They aren't important, and we shouldn't do any more of that. We must stop all the bad things. And stopping all the bad things actually produces a no-progress situation. And what's the balance here between forethought where you're thinking at the time you're developing something about what might be the consequences uh, and uh, catch-up. 
you know, that you d develop something and then you're constantly catching up to try and sort out the adverse effects. I mean, you, you talk about Tim Berners-Lee, I mean, who's, who's horrified that the internet has been used to uh, fix elections. Mm. Or, um, I don't know whether you've seen it, there's, um, some, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you haven't, uh, but deep fakes, these things from generative adversarial networks, or deep video portraits, where you have... Um, say, the, 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 the face of your favourite actress uh, pasted into uh, a movie, a, a porn movie. Or you have deep fakes where you have, there was one recently where you have Obama uh, being rather rude about uh, Trump, which was hugely entertaining, but actually deeply worrying. And there, it, it's, you know, engineers are going to take a long time to try and catch up. You know, the horse is bolted there. Of, of course, the horse always bolts. It's also, to use a, not a horse, but a lot of this is cat and mouse as well. Mm. I mean, it's like a Tom and Jerry problem. You know, every movement, something else happens. You've got to keep on top of it. There's no natural way of taking all the unintended consequences out of something, especially in the hands of malign actors. You know, people who actually want to use it in a way which it wasn't intended to be used. So that's one problem. And the second problem is, I think, uh, when things move very quickly, there are some engineering companies who just decide, well, since we can do it, let's do it, rather than stepping back and saying, maybe we shouldn't do it. This was the Facebook problem. So uh, I think all of that requires several things. It definitely requires better supervision at the corporate level. So, you know, boards of directors should actually understand what the companies are actually doing and look, they're meant to be broader people and they're meant to know how society acts according to the products. So that's very important. Regulation inevitably lags action. So something goes wrong, eventually regulation comes into place, but we need to have that regulation. So people are looking at how you regulate, you know, social media, how you regulate. You're not going to be able to regulate everything, but it will begin to chill negative activity. And then, ultimately, you have laws and treaties that really uh, push the... Um, try and get rid of the bad actors. So it's not perfect. It by no means perfect. It's never been perfect. Um, and it will continue to be, I think, a cat and mouse game. And what was interesting, um, you talked to Vint Cerf, who's father of the internet, as well as uh, to Tim Berners-Lee. And Vint Cerf's view was that uh, what would happen was that people would actually think, I can't be doing with this. And they would stop using the internet because they got so fed up with it. Whereas, actually, Tim Berners-Lee, funnily enough, who is, as I said, horrified by what has happened to some of the internet, he thinks that it will become a bit like football, you know, that there will be rules. And, you know, if people follow the rules, I mean, you can have a very bad-tempered football match, but there are still rules that keep people... Apart and, and actually, there may be both. Mm. You know, people will say, I just couldn't be bothered with this, and so they'll check out. You know, they won't use uh, a social media structure. They'll use different things. 
some people will uh, want rules, and these, there will be rules. Uh, and I think there'll be a combination of both. Uh, and they will apply to different groupings. You know, after all, the internet was meant to broaden out uh, our connectivity, which is true, it did. But it also narrowed it by allowing special interest groups to come together and get balkanized, you know. Mm. So people who thought the same thing would have even more intense conversations rather than spreading the word across. Now so my... I, I, I spoke, I, I decided, met Vince Cerf, met him several times, but for this interview, I met him at the Folger Library in Washington, D.C., which is the repository of half the first folios of Shakespeare. And I thought it was an ideal place to meet the person who had bought us the internet. Uh, and did we, he think so too? Yes, he did. Uh, and he's on the board there. Uh, and we, uh, so we had a sandwich lunch and, and talked mostly about privacy uh, and uh, how privacy uh, was being muddled up. People, he, he, comes, uh, this, he comes from a generation where uh, there was in, in, a, in a village, of course, a postmaster and a postmistress, a telephone operator. Who knew everything. Who, and they, they knew everything. Of course. They knew absolutely everything, and nobody <laughs> minded. They, you got a letter, they didn't open it, but they knew it came from your uncle. And they said, nice letter. <laughs> you made a phone call, and you had to go through the operator, so they knew who you were calling, and... Sometimes they just listen to it to make sure the quality of the call was okay. <laughs> so, you know, privacy was a sort of new idea, and, and we got used to that, of course, because those things didn't happen. Uh, but then we muddled it up because we uh, sat in front of a computer screen and said, in front of the screen, we are anonymous. We're anonymous. And so we can agree to everything. We can, you know, when it says, do you accept? Accept, because we're anonymous. Uh, what we, I think, didn't realise was the number of times you accept and the pattern of behaviour, they know exactly who you are. Uh, and, and having given it away, it's very tough to come back. So privacy is sort of gone to a large extent. Now, I have a great... and. Deep love for engineers, of course. Uh, but, but even their best friends would say that sometimes they're not so great at communication. And do you think that actually, if these unintended consequences are to be better understood, that maybe engineers need to communicate more at an earlier stage and with a wider set of publics you know, and perhaps, I mean, it's the reason why, of course, UKRI was put together, that we need to bring all uh, together all these disciplines, the social science, the arts and humanities, and that engineers really need to get into that kind of collaborative spirit. Uh, I completely agree. And engineering actually is not uh, civil engineering, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, all this. It is engineering. And if you take it in the broadest way, then I think you get people to think of much more carefully about what they're doing with, against and for humanity. And that means that they will have to communicate uh, and they'll have to communicate in better and better ways. 
I think if you say, well, my problem is just the mechanical engineering bit of it, let me hand it over to somebody else, then you probably don't have to communicate. You know, you can just be there doing, it's like being a cog in a, in a machine as opposed to being the person integrating everything from the discovery to humanity. And I believe that uh, that's what you have to do. You have to do it in a way which I think reasonably reflects common sense and uh, commonsensical timescales. Otherwise, you get into the hype business, which is everywhere. Ah, hype. Hype. Now, I have to tell you that in Tomorrow's World, we talked about there being electric cars on every street within five years for 30 years. <laughs> and nobody rumbled us. But actually, hype is a big issue. I mean, robotics, I, I, I always think when I see robotics, or you see robots, actually what they can do is that quite often uh, what you see is a, a, a robot is doing vacuum cleaning. And you think, is that all robots can do after all this time? No, but they do a lot more. I mean, if you go to a modern, uh, for example, car plant, you have small, yeah, those kind ro of, small robots yes. working with humans uh, to do... Humans do the bits that humans can do. Robots provide the, the pieces that humans then deal with. Uh, they're amazing things. So, but I, I think there's a lot of hype in, in engineered products in particular. Part of it nowadays is because everybody wants to get their share of the mind share attention when there's too much going on. So you have to exaggerate to get, uh, get uh, attention. Secondly, you want to sell your product. Sometimes you just want to sell it on a financial market, so you exaggerate again. Uh, and you normally exaggerate the speed at which you can deliver something and the quality with which it can be delivered. Uh, and finally, uh, some of this stuff is so attractive that politicians say, I've just got to have a slice of this information action. So I'm going to say, we're going to have autonomous vehicles on the streets in 10 years' time. Uh, not a chance. Not a chance, you know. <laughs> And, uh, yes, actually, the, the trick was always, if you hear three to five years, it's probably at least 20. And 10, ten is probably never. a generation, yes, or right. never. So there is a... The, and, and there are reasons for this, you know. I, I, I was very struck in when I wrote the book. I, I, I wanted to talk to people who, who were hands-on in robotics and uh, autonomous vehicles. And, and why didn't autonomous vehicles appear more quickly after Google had had this breakthrough with Mr. Thurman and his, uh, and his vehicle. And the more, I un the more I understood, the more I realized the problem. Uh, and the problem was this. First, our standards of safety are very different for machines than people. So in the United States, there are approximately 40,000 road traffic deaths a year. Now, they don't cause outrage. They cause sympathy and sadness, but not outrage. So that's 40,000. There, I think, was one accident by an autonomous vehicle, and it created outrage. So we know from this little sample 
that an autonomous vehicle now has to be at least 40,000 times safer than a human operator of an automobile. That's a standard which is tough. It has to get to the standard is quite high indeed. And figuring out how to test a vehicle that will actually perform in that way is a big, big challenge, one which has not been met yet. So that's why it takes time. In fact, I spoke to Missy Cunningham, one of the great uh, uh, robotics uh, engineers. She used to fly F-16s. Uh, As you do. Uh, and uh, she, she was in the US Air Force and then became a professor. Uh, and she went into this uh, area because so many of her friends died as a result of uh, control system problems. So she, she says, I'm not sure that I want to be on the road while someone is experimenting with an autonomous vehicle because they're experimenting on me and they need my permission to do that. So she's very cautious about it and says it will take time. It's actually easier to fly a plane in three dimensions with an autonomous system than it is with the two dimensions and the complexity of the road. And they rely, we were talking about this earlier, but they rely on, if there's something goes wrong, there's some alarm and the, you, know, you're, you as the passenger are suddenly supposed to spring to attention and rest back control. But actually we will have been vastly de-skilled how many of us will still be able to have driving skills if we constantly go in autonomous vehicles? And those who might benefit the most are perhaps the elderly, who, for reasons of their own frailty, may not be able to drive. So there are all sorts of... But the standards of... have to be higher and higher. Yes. You know, I mean, an aeroplane, of course, a pilot, uh, is in a simulator frequently, being tested and retested, and all the responses being examined. And as a result, that's why air, air safety is so good. 737 MAX accepted, but it's an amazing sta high standard. I want to come back to climate change because that's something that you have been passionately interested in. Um, I mean, it's over, is it 20 years now when you said that... 22 years. 22 years. And you stood before a group of your peers in the oil and gas industry and basically said that this industry is, is over. And still we're in the pickle we're in. Tell me a bit uh, about your thoughts on energy use. So I, I did this, let me say, not to drive myself out of business, but actually to try and understand how to change the industry. But for a very long time, when you look at the way that energy is used in the world, every time you look at it, you come to this extraordinary conclusion that we can't get rid of hydrocarbons for quite a long time. If you look 20 to 30 years ahead, at 20 years ahead, it's probably the same amount of hydrocarbons being used, oil and gas, than as today. It'll be a smaller percentage of all the energy used but it's still a lot. So how do we square this particular circle with stopping climate change? And that, I think, is the real challenge. Now, you could argue that we, we could cut consumption a bit. You know, we'll get more efficient. Uh, we'll use less uh, vehicles and things like that. 
But when I tell you that since 1985, that's been happening anyway, every year from 1985 to today, in a straight line, the efficiency of use of oil into productive use has, gone, has got better and better and better. By one, so it's over 30% more efficient. Over 30% more efficient. So that's a part of the solution, but it's not enough. So I look around and say, we now have the tools and technology to do what we need to do. We need first to take the, this sounds very odd, but to take the carbon out of hydrocarbons. We can do this one of two ways. Either we can capture the CO2, the carbon dioxide that we make when we burn hydrocarbons, and do something with it, mostly to store it up. There's a huge amount of storage in the world for that. Sometimes to use it for something, like, for example, to cure cement faster, because that's got a lot of CO2 in it. You can put it back in, and it actually makes better cement. Or you can take the carbon out before you burn it. And this is something where you make hydrogen and carbon dioxide out of hydrocarbons. You bury the carbon dioxide and you use the hydrogen as a power source. That's a well-known process. Both, both of these processes are expensive, but the more you do, the cheaper they become. It's a rule of engineering. The more you do, the cheaper it becomes per unit. It's called the learning curve. So that's one way of solving a very big amount of the problem. The other big amount, of course, is to make other sources of energy much more effective. Whether that's solar, you can probably make those solar panels two or three times more effective with the breakthroughs that are coming through, or whether it's wind, and the storage needed to store that energy when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. That's something that needs to be improved, but we have it today. So if we decided, setting aside money for a moment, to change the world's use of CO2, we could do it right now. It would take time to roll it out everywhere. So you ask yourself, well, why haven't we done it? And, and the answer is that there's no incentive to do it. People are well-meaning, but in order to get this done, they have to have a financial incentive to get it done. Whether that is a, a, um, an a incentive, a positive, or actually it's a tax, which is negative, which says you have to sort out the CO2, because if you put it into the atmosphere, it's your problem, you pay a tax. So it's a combination of the two. And slowly, slowly, probably not fast enough, the world is coming together for this. Uh, and I think that's what we have to hope is going to happen. And more than hope, I think. Uh, whether it's true or not, when you look at the world's weather, it's affecting people. They're worrying about it. Wildfires in California... Uh, the hurricanes are a bit stronger because the water uh, is a little uh, warmer uh, in the oceans. Uh, you know whether you look at uh, you know whether it's cyclical or not. Uh, coral reefs are dying. Uh, there's a lot of changes in rain and sun patterns, 
and people are saying something's up, we've got to do something about this. Uh, and actually, I'm frankly all encouraging that. Uh, whether or not it's directly related, it will force, I think, people slowly to do something about climate change, which is to do something about the public policy side of this so we can get on and actually apply what we have already today. And we can do that. Mm. But, John, you say that you know, such things will take a long time to, to deliver and be very expensive. And in many countries, there are politicians who are short-termists and they really don't want to be responsible for initiating things which are extremely costly. How do you, how do engineers get the message across that well, this must first be done? Of all, Although you have succeeded, by the way, in technology and borders. You seem to have, people seem to be completely convinced that technology and borders is going to work. It may. <laughs> Actually, it probably will. With facial recognition, it will. Controls are an issue. Uh, but I, I think, you know, you... Um, so, first of all, you have to get on in order to get the cost down. Mm. Otherwise, you stand there and you say, well, it costs 100 units today, and that's all I know. But actually, tomorrow, if it works like almost anything in engineering, my, the illustration in the book I like the most of all is the cost of lighting. So we managed to get data going back a little way to 1301. And um, the cost, I know there weren't light bulbs in 1301, but if you had a 75-watt light bulb in 1301 and you turned it on for a month, it would have cost you £40,000. Today, it cost you less than a pound. And this is not a joke. It's an illustration of what happens when you push a product. Same is true with the cost of solar panels. They've gone down by 250 times. You know, percent, 250 times, excuse me, from the very beginning. So the more you do, the cheaper it becomes, point one. Point two is it's not actually that expensive because it's expensive if you ask yourself, what am I doing with, for example, the taxes I would levy on carbon. So I argue the taxes you'd levy on carbon are not to raise money. They are to redistribute money from the producers of carbon to people. So if you tax carbon, the price, let's say, of petrol goes up, but then the taxes you get from taxing carbon you give back to the population. And those hardest hit get more of it back than those who can afford it. And that is a process which has been discussed a lot in the United States and elsewhere. And I think it's something that we're beginning to think maybe this will work. Maybe this will work. What you can't do is what Mr. Macron did, which is tax everybody uh, to reduce uh, energy consumption. And you hit the poorest people the hardest. And that's not on. And you get riots. And how resistant are the big oil companies in the US, for instance? So there's a lot of... Uh, well, first of all, I think what I was in New York only... Um, when was I? A week ago. Uh, and I'm struck at how what's happening in Europe is pulling the rest of the world along here. 
the, the Europe, I think, has been in, in the vanguard of doing something about climate change. They've done enough, but they're beginning to do things. So in the case of oil companies, what's happening is that every time an oil company goes to see an investor, they say, what are you going to do about your carbon? Mm. And if the answer is not satisfactory, they say, well, we really don't want to invest in you. Uh, and if you look at the percentage of the stock market, which is accounted for by oil and gas, it's gone down from 15% to 4 so that shows you that something is beginning to happen. And I think I would say that everyone is alert to it. So the question, like every question always is, first you reject it, then you begin to accept it and say it's someone else's problem. Uh, and then you begin to say, well, maybe I'll share the problem. And then eventually you might say, well, it's actually my problem. I need to do something about it. And everybody's in, in that spectrum of recognition at the moment. And will we have done enough in time? I don't know. I think we've wasted 25 years. Uh, we really have wasted 25 years since Rio won, I think. Uh, and uh, we, at, uh, during that time, we built a stock of carbon up, quite a big stock, mm. actually. Now, some of it's but inevitable because, you know, the poverty in China was alleviated. Uh, the Soviet Union changed shape, you know. The Berlin Wall came down. A lot of things happened which changed the economics and consumption of the world. But uh, So it is the open question at the moment whether enough can be done in time or what, what, what temperature rise we will actually see. There are big ranges in these temperature rises, but uh, it's unclear at the moment whether we can do enough in time to be sure uh, that we uh, keep uh, temperature down to around about today's level. And what's been encouraging in the US is that even though Trump has rejected the Paris Accord, actually um, city mayors, uh, big companies, they've all said... Uh, carried on. They've just carried on. Well, I think 30 states of the union... Well, the federal government's trying to sue some of the states to say that they're doing, they shouldn't do something about climate change. But I, I think this is all, you know, tactics. But uh, the populations in many states just want to get on and do something. So they're regulating uh, emissions. They're regulating, um, you know, the use of cars. They're regulating all sorts of things. Now, it's piecemeal, but it's beginning to make an impact. And also we're seeing new technologies come along. I mean, small nuclear reactors, which are, you can load on the back of a lorry. Sort of. Sort of. Uh, it how small they are. <laughs> but no, you can actually put them on a flatbed and uh, bring them in. Now, you have to... Uh, it, these are not designed to go to the bottom of your garden, let's be clear. Uh, they need just in to, case you were wanting just, one. <laughs> uh, they, they need to be put in a secure place and they need to be put into something which will moderate the radiation, so probably underwater, probably. Um, but uh, they can be installed in some of these sites which are, are no longer being used and they're safe and secure and connected. And, and there you the, get scale, don't you? The because point is, yes, yeah, if you cheapest. make a lot of them, they get cheaper by the unit. The more you make, the cheaper they become. Uh, in fact, I think nuclear power stations right now are the only things that go up in cost the more you make. 
uh, it's quite the reverse. The more you make, the more expensive they become. So we've got to convert that. But we actually have to get people to think that nuclear power is okay. It's safe. And every time people try and do that, something happens, whether it's a tsunami in Japan or whether it's the um, release of uh, five... Uh, a five-episode box set called Chernobyl, you know, which uh, is pretty scary. shows you what happens when the design is wrong and the decision-making is wrong and the leadership's wrong and people first try and figure out who's wrong before they, before they cure the defect. I think it's, uh, it's about human behaviour as well as technology. One of the things that I was most sorry about in my uh, interviewing career was I interviewed a man who had been present in Chernobyl and had actually been in the control room on the night. And he had uh, gone down into the, um, into the reactor room. He'd held the door. And anyway, I, I was interviewing him 20 years uh, after Chernobyl and he had a, a minder uh, who was all over him. And he, I said, how did it feel? What were your feelings on that night? And he spoke for about five minutes in Russian. And I turned to the translator and said, what did he say? And he said that it was difficult. And, <laughs> and, that, was, and that was it. But I, I want to turn over the questions to you, but... but but before uh, I do, I just want to ask one thing about DARPA, because you measure, uh, you mentioned DARPA in the book, and here we are in the Queen's speech, there was mention of a DARPA-like agency. Tell us a bit more about that and where you see that possibly going. So I, I think I want to go back to ARPA. Uh, so after Sputnik, um, I think the United States was somewhat shocked that they hadn't done this before the Russians. And they created, I think, a, a doctrine which uh, a doctrine which exists today, which is uh, superiority of the United States, in particular in engineering products and processes, which is what it was. A and so they set up ARPA, which was staffed by engineers. Actually, it was an engineering activity uh, to get various things done, including uh, rockets and space activity as well as, I think, semiconductors originally from ARPA. You know, that's why uh, IBM, Intel, people like that flourished. So it was a very specific task, and it worked like a dream. It worked, it was magic. And then it sort of went downhill, and then it reappeared in particular for defence. So defence came back up, and there was an agency... Uh, in uh, Washington to do that. It's very dependent now on the investigators they get in and the leaders they get in. But again, these are products. When I was there, they were making uh, prosthetic limbs controlled by the brain for uh, injured service people. And, uh, and it's a bit hit and miss because nobody's quite sure what to, where to put it in the brain. Uh, they would... Uh, examining more and more complex hacking techniques. Uh, again, it was very specific for the military, for, uh, and it was an engineered product. So I think these are very good things. If you find, if you can get a real objective, 
You know, we are going to, let's pick one, for example. We as a nation are going to crack climate change. We're going to crack zero emissions. And we pull all the engineering and the science together uh, for the, in service of one thing. That would be pretty good. Uh, but I think it's not, uh, and there's some confusion, I don't think it's actually amenable to discovery science. I think that's a very different, really is a genuinely different activity. Institutes like the Crick are uh, perfectly designed for discovery. But ARPA, DARPA is not quite the right process. But to get something done that you can pick an objective and get there, it may be terrific. Probably it should be done once and then abandoned and then done again, you know, rather than becoming an institution in itself which tends to do less and less over time. It decays. Mm, right, well. Uh, so, let's take some questions. Um, this lady in the front row. Um, you talked about climate change in the context of carbon dioxide, but methane tra traps up to 100 times more in a five-year period than carbon dioxide, and it's a gas that's extensively produced by the livestock industry. And the problem is, if you ask someone to switch from cold to something cleaner, it's no problem. But if you say, put down your bacon sandwich, it's pistols at dawn. And I'm wondering what you think is the kind of system change and attitude change we need to stop a much bigger problem, which people sometimes don't want to talk about, because it's much harder to give up for quite a lot of people, as it's very culturally embedded. Just repeat again, which gas were you... Methane. Uh, methane. methane. Oh, methane. Ah, but it's much easier to handle. So I think methane, uh, you know, there is no reason at all why methane should escape any industrial production or manufacturing process. There's no reason at all. This is simply a matter of zero defects, engineering and money. And it's not a lot of money. And that must be done. We need rules and measurement to make that happen. Unfortunately, the President of the United States is trying to remove the regulation that requires people to contain methane. There is obviously natural methane that comes out of uh, both the decay of plants and things like that. But at normal steady states, that's what the world can accommodate. It's this excess when we manufacture or produce, that's the problem. But are cattle um, and other livestock greater producers of to, methane to compared extent, to the yes. industrial processes? I mean, processes. it's going back to some sort of equilibrium level. So, I mean, eating, you know, requiring a lot of beef is a problem. I mean, there's just uh, more cattle create a bigger pool of methane, that's for sure. But I think I wouldn't start there. I'd start actually at the industrial level because I know that with no change to anybody, you could actually cut a vast amount of methane out. You really could. Now, the next step then is to get rid of, is to, is to worry about cattle and to worry about natural decay. How would you deal with it? <laughs> what do you think? Stop subsidizing the meat industry. Um, you might wonder why chicken is so cheap. It's actually a lot more expensive than people think to produce. I would stop subsidising and, you know, really make it, price it what it's worth, what it actually costs to raise mm. that animal, um, look after it and then kill it, instead of make it so cheap, um, actually give it a value. You probably have to tax it, actually. Yeah. You probably have to tax it, which you could do. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no, no problem yeah. with that at all. Another question. 
I'd just like to speak up for the value of imagination for a second, because um, you know your pitch is broadly science will save us. But um, there will come a point, I think the young lady touched on it, where everyone's going to have to learn some or adopt a slightly more moral position where they can have to restrain themselves. Because if we believe science will save us, we, we don't practice any restraint. We just look to that to do everything for us. So if I, if I may, I mean, I, first of all, I'm a great believer in imagination driving us forward because it is the unique and exceptional characteristic of human beings to have imagination. I mean, we can't have machines to do that, and I think by the time we actually figure out how to do that, it'll be a long, 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 long time. So I'm all in favour of self-restraint. The problem is that it doesn't work. Uh, because one person will take advantage of somebody else, especially when it comes to nations and different cultures. So we have to figure out something. Uh, and I don't believe in world government either. I've never seen it work, ever. Uh, so we need to figure out how to get different nations to do things. And I think in the first instance, we have to use tools and techniques to enable people to still do roughly what they want, but not completely what they want. Then we have to apply public policy. And that's where it's difficult. You know, when, when a politician stands up and says, you can't eat beef, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I'd be quite happy. Uh, but I think a lot of people would say, why not? And, you know, and we don't like you. We won't vote for you, you know. So I think it has to be done really carefully, and I think it's a slow burn. I think it's a, quite a slow process. I wish it weren't that way. So we could, for example, uh, if we really wanted to change a lot of things, if we, if we changed our behavior, for example, I, I still, you know, I run businesses, and I'm always amazed at how much travel is done, which is actually unnecessary. It could be now done with this amazing communication techniques that we have. They're great. But people's lifestyle, almost their behavior in business, requires them to go to places. Um, so I think you know, that would change things quite a bit. Uh, the way we eat, of course, uh, that would help a lot. Uh, so there are plenty of things we could do but they won't necessarily be done voluntarily. They may be done with taxes, but they have to be done very carefully, otherwise the taxes won't get through. It's tough enough getting anything through a legislature at the moment, I'd say. It's funny, isn't it? Because imagination is something that I think people wouldn't immediately associate with engineers. And yet, actually, I've always thought that engineers are incredibly creative people. Because in order to find solutions, you need to think creatively. And I, I, I think of engineers as rather as the classic knot unpickers. You know, they cannot resist picking at a knot until they've completely unraveled it. But they do use imagination to do that as well. I mean, I, I want to come back to this... this amazing idea that we should actually go and try and see further and further into space with the James Webb 
deep space telescope. It's an, an impossible thing. If it ever appears. Well, they're building it. Yes. And it's pretty well Much built. delayed. Yeah. Much delayed, because they want to make sure it really works. But it's a piece of deep space origami. You know? <laughs> they're going to fold this thing up uh, into 180 folds, I've forgotten. And when it gets to its point, it's going to unfold itself. Take 30 days to unfold. Uh, to create a great big umbrella. And presumably they're not the going to ever try and get it back in the box again. You can't. It's a one-way one way trip. One-way trip. It's an amazing piece of imagination. I mean, just you know, getting a chemotherapy agent to a tumour as opposed to along a bloodstream. It's an amazing piece of imagination, if you think about it. Oh. Uh, many engineering advances are, take place because of war. And in times of war, how do you balance that with, obviously, the peaceful and desirable use? That's so an interesting a very question. good question. I think a lot of advances have had uh, dual use from the Drones. very beginning. Well, I mean, you know, I tell the story in my book about... I, I live partly in Venice. The Arsenale uh, was a place where ships were built. The first time, first mass production area... Every bit was done by a separate person. But the Venetians had figured out how to make ships which were small. So for trade, if they lost the cargo, they didn't lose it all. And they were armed so that they could also be used for fighting. So they're dual use. And dual use technologies everywhere. So drones are fantastic for delivering medicine to stranded communities or in the case of emergencies. Uh, but also, as we see today, they can be used for nuisance uh, at an airport or carrying um, bombs or individual bombs uh, against people. So we have to therefore build antidotes to that. You know, so the antidotes are always... I think in, when I spoke to the, uh, the guy who was running the MOD at the time... He said, I want to introduce this concept to you, not of mutually assured destruction. So I've got a nuclear weapon, you've got one. If they're both the same, we never use them because we'll destroy each other. But mutually assured disturbance. So we don't like that either. So if I've got a drone with bombs on, you've got one as well, we may get neutralised. Problem is the malign actor. So therefore... You have to build tools and weapons to knock these things out of the sky, which is possible now, or to interfere with their signals, which is, you know, send them back to where they came from. So that is, I think, uh, and, and this has advanced different tools and techniques that we can use for other forms of communication. So I think uh, all, I mean, a lot of advances come from... Uh, dual use, really dual use. Uh, and uh, they've generally been okay. Uh, the nuclear bomb is the exception. Uh, the nuclear bomb was really designed to destroy. And only later did people figure out maybe we could tame it and make a nuclear power station while, incidentally, we made a lot of plutonium which we could then put into bombs. This was called a hall. The big secret of Calder Hall, of course, was it was designed to make plutonium, of which we now have 
so much, we don't know what to do with it. But on the other hand, that atomic uh, bomb uh, work uncovered all uh, a lot of thing, knowledge about uh, electrons, oh, tremendous about, things, which has led us to quantum computing. Yes, L lots and lots of things were all uncovered. Whether it's medical, whether it's uh, you know computing, whether it's clocks, all these sorts of things. Mm, thank you. I'd like to start by just congratulating you, John. The book is magnificent. I've read every word of it, and it's extraordinarily broad. However, the sting is going to be in my question, because uh, there's something you didn't discuss, and I think it was perhaps appropriate not to discuss it. If you look at the last 50, 60 years, a huge amount of advances came from big industrial research labs, from Bell Labs, from IBM, from Hughes Aircraft, from GE. Those have faded away to a... Not, not totally, but they tend not to do research uh, as much as development now. And part of the reason for that is that worldwide there's not been respect for the intellectual property for patents and things like that. Now, do you think, do you think it's right that we should let developing countries have intellectual property uh, for free? just so that they, that would encourage development there? What do you think about that? It's a very so, difficult question. I think there are two trends, Alex. First is, if you look at the defence industry, just back to this last question, actually what's happened is government has reduced its research and it's gone into the hands of commercial enterprises. So there's a big question about what is the security balance here. So that's point one. Point two is, you're right, I think there's a lot of uh, issues to do with intellectual property. It depends which field you're in. So I look at, for example, I'm chairman of Huawei UK Technologies. Most people have heard of Huawei nowadays. Uh, and uh, so Huawei owns 25% of all the global patents on 5G. And they invented that. You can't steal it and have a global patent. So nobody can work without cross-licensing from Huawei. Interesting problem. So it works in some areas for more tangible things, uh, but, underneath, but for more easily copyable things, then people run riot. And so as a result, people keep secrets, they don't cross-license, or they just don't bother. Nonetheless, I think, uh, so in this area, so that in these new areas, seems to me that R&D is actually going up. So Huawei's R&D budget is 16 billion US dollars a year. It's one of the biggest in the world. But the so-called tech R&D is going up. Pharma, about steady, I think, if I'm not mistaken, about steady. Uh, and then... The rest is all over the shop. So I think people are doing it regardless of whether people steal IP and they pursue them partly because for many, many things you need cross-licensing. Many, many. Th As you know, in the area you've been uh, heavily involved in, that's, it's all cross-licensed. Uh, any semiconductor has no end of cross-licensing on it. So I think, um, I think that stops some of it. 
The other bits people just try and protect with trade secrets. Speak another. The gentleman up there. Yeah, it's a quick question. It might not be a quick answer. Um, so you, you said, I think you said the, the book is broad and deep. You interviewed 100 people and you were asked um, who was your favourite or your, the most remarkable person you interviewed. I'm going to ask you, um, so somewhere between the Stone Axe and the James Webb Space Telescope, what's the, what's the most remarkable piece of engineering that, or at least your favourite piece of engineering over the, during the course of your research? It's like asking if he uh, has a favourite child, I suspect. No, I, I, actually, I think it's, in the end, it's, the, it's what people now call the cloud, which they think is some intangible activity. But actually, it's the gigantic advances in computing machines and memory, which has given us, uh, opened up opportunities everywhere. I think we forget, you know, there was these, all these statements about software eating the world, only if it's allowed to, in my view, and what allows it is the hardware behind it. So I think my unsung hero is the gigantic uh, compute power that we now have that sits hidden away from everybody. Uh, it's huge and inexpensive, uh, and that's been a massive advance in the last 50 years. It's enabled everything, AI, you know, I mean, the algorithms for AI Genomics. were well known. You know, in the Second World War, people used the equivalents of it. Uh, genomics, mm. um, storing your favourite uh, movies, of course, appearing in your favourite movies, uh, being able to... I was at Wembley Stadium looking at a 5G uh, application. So 90,000 people in uh, Wembley Stadium will be all able to uh, download at high speed, broadband, no latency, their favourite movies while watching a football game, or actually... Are they that boring? As they do. Are they that uh, boring? <laughs> or watch the football game on their device from every angle. You know, at Wimbledon, you know, you go there, it's a very small place, people should be focused on, the, on what's going on. They're not actually watching it uh, because they get different angles and they get replays. But can I challenge you a bit on this, John? Because, um, you know, all our habits of watching cats on the internet and uh, all those kind of uh, things, and, and, and blockchain even, it uses an extraordinary amount of computing power, which produces enormous... It uses, yes. Exactly. So people, that seems completely hidden from people. But that, that, that's a real uh, problem. I, I, I know, as... and we won't be able to regulate that either, because I think if we said to people, you cannot use, uh, you know, you have to think four times before you send one message, because uh, otherwise you're going to, people won't do it. So you have to clean up what's generating the electricity in order to go into the data centre. The other thing you can do, which is, you know, constantly challenged, is can you separate the hot bits from the cold bits, you know? Because the hot bits are the computing, the cold bits are the memory, cache, and all that sort of thing. So if you can actually just separate the actual core compute piece from everything else, you know, and still keep the same effective speed, then you could probably cut down the amount of cooling hugely. Hugely. And, and actually, is a big thing. it's one of the arguments 
though we might not argue for them in many other cases, but it's one of the arguments for having these very big tech firms, is that they've got extraordinary amounts of money to plough into technological advance. I mean, I know Google, for instance, have reduced their cooling by something like 40% by just all sorts of different I, I think tech you, approaches. Yes. I mean, the, the problem is that we're now going to expand. I mean, soon we, there will be countries which are entirely built on data centers, if we're not careful. Uh, you know, but... Uh, Too many people watching cats. Let's yeah. take another question up there. Um, so it wasn't, it's not my question. I was actually going to comment on the um, statement made there about the policy, uh, uh, policy infringement, uh, IP-related. I thought it was somewhat interesting that you talked there about uh, cross-policy, uh, the term you used. Cross-licensing. Um, cross-licensing, uh, as from your position in Huawei, uh, when the movement, not just in software, but in other areas, is for open source. And given the trade war between America and China recently, Huawei might have been a bit stuck on their mobile business were it not for the benefits of open source and Android. I think there are two different things. First is the actual operating system. Second is the platforms that are being used, and they're different things. Uh, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of the uh, actual system, the basic infrastructure systems, have always been privately held and licensed. Otherwise, how else can you make money with a semiconductor, for example, or a piece of memory. You can't. What you can do, though, is you can create usage with an open source platform, which is the idea behind Android. Okay. I think. Do you disagree? It, um, you can create usage, yes, but if you're looking for areas where you can try and do something incredible to... Uh, come up with new technologies, you want as many people working on something as possible. And it's interesting that you touch on chips there because that's another area that is now becoming an open source area. The basic fundamental design of a chip is something that academics have been working on to create open source versions. And right, but the bulk of them which are actually made are made with proprietary or cross-licensed They are now, yes. Activity. But so let's see how That was also true of iPhones and now they are slipping down the chain when it comes to operating systems. You can certainly make different forms of iPhone, yes, or, or smartphone. I agree with that. Uh, one last question. Who's going to... Well, if there's no last question, can I... There is. Oh, it's, well, uh, there. Well, you're quite clearly very well informed about the world around you. And as you might know, the media that we often consume is quite prone to bias. So what do you normally do in order to get a clear and unbiased view of the world? What an interesting question. Good question. I, I don't know whether I can, but what I tend to do is I tend to... Uh, so I, I hope that I can tell when people are pulling the other one. You know, they're just trying to pull something over my eyes. And I, I do it by looking at different sources of information. I've always done that. Uh, and realising that some are more reliable than others, and they change from time to time. So I, I think it's a matter of cross-referencing, and actually not suspending, and making sure you don't suspend common sense, because some of this stuff just doesn't make sense. Uh, and I think, you know, with time you just say, I don't, it can't be true. You know, in, in business, for example, people always tell you they're going to make gold from water. 
And if it's too good to be true, it's just untrue, you know. And so uh, I think you have to apply the same thing to almost everybody. And, and, and people who repeatedly let you down, you're very clear that they're probably going to let you down again. They don't change. So I, I think that's what you do with media. Uh, I think there's an awful lot of influence in media, which is not going to go away. Uh, I suppose if we'd been sitting here in the 19th century, 20th, 19th century, we would have said these terrible newspapers, you know, they're really, they're, they're changing opinion. It's a bad thing. The gutter press is really bad. Uh, and that's true, you know, people would say, well, proprietors, you know, the great proprietors of the past would create the results of, um, results of elections. This is now just being done by lots of other people, lots of different people with social and other media. But it's up to us, I think, all of us, just to test things with people we trust, people like us, uh, and say, you know, do we believe it? Do we not believe it? Uh, and uh, I think apply simple common sense to it. Uh, we can regulate it. Of course, it's got to be true. It can be regulated at the right times. But in the end... Uh, we'll be regulating the regulations if we're not careful. There's a limit to what we can do. We could, of course, always do something. We could ban information. That would not be good for anybody, I think. Can I close, John, by asking you something about the future? I mean, in many ways, we live in a golden age of engineering. There's been extraordinary progress. But here we are in the UK at a time, and I hesitate to say the word in front of you all, but, you know, post-Brexit, how will engineering be in our future? What part will it play in our future? Am I allowed to repeat what I said once at the UKRI board? I'm sure you are. So Vivian and I sit on a board called UK Research and Innovation, which is designed to bring together all the government money the bulk of the government money spent on R&D and innovation in the United Kingdom. Which is about £7 billion. And going up every year. So I, I really, at my stage, I don't need to sit on a board, but I feel strongly to sit on this board because I believe that when we look to the future of this country, it's going to be written by research, engineering, development. We're going to write it that way. We're going to create things that we don't know we've got. We're going to create people who are better than we can ever imagine. And we're going to sell and these things to ourselves and to other people in ways that we haven't even conceived of. So it's imagination along with basic high quality uh, of innovation, discovery, engineering, product uh, that will, I think, give us a future in this country. And, and we've had bits of that future in the past. We just need to keep creating it. So the government's got to do something, and that's what I think the role of UKRI is to do just that. And it's got to encourage the private sector to come along with it, because the private sector is a very important provider of people and money in the space of research and innovation. So that's what I believe we're going to do. And 
I can't see anything else that's going to give us an edge in the world. So I hope that we get that right. And on that, Lord Brown, thank you so much for spending this time with us. And it's been uh, fascinating. And thank you. Thank you very much. That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a big difference. And if you'd like to support our work, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the Royal Institution. This list is $1 a month and you'll get access to exclusive content, early releases and digital freebies. Thanks.